First of all, it's uh, really good to see everyone. Thanks for coming out. Um, I know it's a, it's a big deal to kind of carve out uh, even a single night from your busy schedules, um, not to mention three nights. So definitely really appreciate it. And uh, I think at the outset, I wanted to kind of clarify how the, the thing is going to go. So obviously, this is our, our Lenten mission. In terms of each night, um, it begins with Mass, obviously at 7 p.m., uh, a long homily, probably the longest weekday homily ever here in your entire life. Um, it's, uh, <laughs> it's recorded, uh, so it's going to be recorded and uploaded to uh, the podcast, so don't worry about taking notes, and then it'll lead into adoration, so adoration will probably be about 15 minutes or so. And uh, in a certain sense, the most important part of the evening is the period of adoration, right? So. Just as a background thing, um, the reason why I structured the evening that way is so that um, basically after you hear uh, the really long homily, it kind of leads immediately into receiving the Lord in the Eucharist and then praying before the Lord in the Eucharistic species. And again, more to the point, um, that time before the Lord in prayer when he's exposed in the Blessed Sacrament, in a certain sense, is the most important part of the evening. Um, what kind of comes to mind, I remember um, uh, years ago talking to my internship pastor, and uh, he, he's known as being a really um, prominent spiritual director, so a lot of people would see him for his wisdom and his counsel. And I remember him saying to me back in the day, you know, Eric, when I see people for spiritual direction, I'm listening for two things. One, do they do their work? And secondly, do they pray? And if they're not doing their work and they're just kind of floating, I don't like that, right, because it means they're not corresponding to the duty of the moment as a habitual thing. But secondly, and kind of more to the point, if they're not praying, and I can tell based on how they talk, right, then I'll say to them, look, um, if you don't start praying, I'm not going to see you anymore. And he said to me a couple times, and uh, I remember the first couple times thinking like, wow, that's, uh, that's kind of shocking, you know? Um, but then I, I remember asking him once about that particular point, and it's like, why, why do you say that to people, right? And he said, well, you know, basically, even in the context of spiritual direction, when people come in and talk to the priests about you know, life and the church and spiritual things, like, real transformation doesn't happen there. Sometimes people just come in, they like talking to the priest, right? And, but the real change happens when you go before the Lord in prayer, whether or not it's before the Lord in the Blessed Sacrament, but ideally, of course, um, before the Lord in the Eucharistic species, right? So it's really good for us to know, especially for a situation like this, right? It's a real tangible way of living out this reality that the Lord is, is basically the Lord, right? He's the Lord of all things. He's the Lord of, of Lent, he's the Lord of the parish, and he's the Lord of the Lent's mission. My job is just to say stuff, right? So my job is just to say a whole bunch of stuff and cast a seed, um, not to take responsibility for a transformation. You know, that's just between you and the Lord, right? So practically speaking, what that means is that, you know, when you're sitting there um, and you're kind of listening to me say these different things about a whole variety of different topics, um, don't be psyched out by the fact that it's a lot of stuff, because every single night it's going to be a lot of stuff like a lot, right? You can always watch the video afterwards. Um, and also, again, don't worry about taking notes. Don't worry about trying to memorize every little thing, right? You want to just be fully present to, to the evening, fully present to your heart. So certainly listen to what's being said in your mind, but also pay attention to your heart. As things are being said, what, what's stirring in your heart? How's the Holy Spirit moving your heart? And especially when it comes to that period of adoration, what certain things are kind of coming to mind, you know? Because there's a particular thing the Lord wants to give you, like tonight, and that's it, right? So one thing, maybe two things, a certain conviction, a certain thought, a certain idea, and that's it for tonight. Tomorrow's a different thing, right? So maybe later on you, you watch the video again, or maybe you're making breakfast the next morning, certain things kind of come to mind. That's just kind of how it goes, right? But for tonight, listen to your heart, 
what is the Holy Spirit speaking to you in your heart? And see, by extension, what the Lord is trying to give to you in the context of, of tonight. So in terms of the topic, um, the topic is um, living the church's mission. Living the church's mission. And, and part of the reason for that is because uh, I'm aware of the fact that, you know, I'm, I'm the new pastor here, so I want to give you a sense of what's on my mind right? and what's to come, right? So it's one of those envisioning homilies, right, uh, or missions. Um, so there's that. But the other thing, though, is because um, that topic, like living the church's mission, is really relevant and pertinent uh, today, right? Because I don't know if you know this, we, lived in kind of, we live in kind of precarious times. Even before COVID, we lived in precarious times, you know? We all know the stats, right? So even before COVID, our, our churches were half full or half empty, depending on what your personality type is, right? Um, you know, you hear about that stat, for example, in the, in the Pew Forum survey, right? So 70% of American Catholics don't believe the Eucharist is like the Eucharist, right? They think it's just a symbol. They don't believe it's the real presence of Christ in the Eucharist. Like 70%, wow, you know? Um, 30%? call themselves the nuns, not nuns and habits, but N-O-N-E-S, right? So not affiliated with any sort of identifiable organized religion, right? So that was a situation before COVID. And during COVID, what happened? Kind of interesting thing, you know? I don't want to oversimplify it, but in, in terms of what we're talking about today, um, obviously there was the dispensation from the Sunday obligation. So just the way it's phrased, um, the idea is that, okay, if you fall into a certain category, you know, so let's say you have a pre-existing health condition, or you're elderly, or you're just kind of afraid of the pandemic, there was a time where, um, you know, you didn't have to go to Mass. If you fell into one of those categories, that list not being particularly exhaustive, right? But something interesting kind of flowed from that, right? And so um, we, di we discovered something about ourselves and how people see the church, right? Because obviously it was a good thing in light of the situation of the pandemic to have the dispensation, right? It made people feel comfortable, met, met them where they're at and all that stuff. So all that was good, right? At the same time, what it did, interestingly enough, it took the notion of obligation out of the equation. So now I'm not obligated to go to Sunday Mass. So, you know, um, now I have the option to go to Mass if I want, but I don't have to. And what did a lot of people choose? Not going to go to Mass, you know? And that could be for a whole variety of reasons, right? But what has come up a lot in terms of like observation and conversation is that people don't really see the value of what we do. It's a really indicting thing, right? So, you know, okay, now the obligation's out the window. Like, do I see any meaningful value in me coming to Mass, receiving the Eucharist, being a part of the parish community, just being part of like the church? And again, the answer, even though it might be kind of erroneous, the answer for a lot of people was, was no, you know? And so to put it more succinctly, the idea was I don't see any substantive difference whether or not I actually participate in the life of the church. It has no relevant or substantive difference in terms of my own lived out experience. Now you hear that and it's, uh, wow, pins against the wall, right? Kind of a discouraging thing. But you always have to remember every great and amazing and creative initiative always flowed from a situation of crisis, right? So Reformation, Counter-Reformation, every ecumenical council in the church flows from a, a situation of crisis. Here's this unexpected thing which comes across our path as, as a local and universal church, and we put our heads together to come up with the thing to be done, right? So this is a really important opportunity to uh, revisit, or perhaps discover for the first time, what is the mission of the church and therefore how to live it? 
It reminds me of this quote by G.K. Chesterton. He said, um, it's not that Christianity has been tried and found wanting. It's rather that Christianity has been found difficult and never tried. <laughs> so it's not that Christianity has been, has been tried and found wanting. It's that rather that Christianity has been found difficult and never tried. So the whole point of tonight's uh, session is to just identify what is the mission of the church. That's it. Next session is about what do I do to live out the mission as an individual. Third session is what do we do as a parish community to, to share in that mission, right? But tonight, really easy, low-hanging fruit. <laughs> the only goal is to clarify what the mission is. And once you discover what the mission is, anybody might be a little embarrassed. Gosh, I never knew what the mission of the church was, right? Now, when you ask people what's the mission of the church, um, people tend to rely on anecdotal evidence or their gut feel, which I hate. Right? So it reminds me back when I was in my first parish uh, teaching RCIA, and uh, I taught all the classes. And at a certain point, I wanted to make sure, I wanted to make sure that people knew that, that they, what I was talking about, and they were learning things. And so one of the key questions I asked every single candidate, and I, I know I covered this in the class, was, how do you know that God exists? How do you know that God exists? And the answer, just so you get the punchline, right? the answer is reason, observation, and revelation. That's the answer. That's the answer in the Catechism of the Catholic Church. How do we know God exists? Based on what I perceive in my mind, based on what I see in terms of the world, and based on what God reveals to me. So reason, observation, revelation. That's the answer. But to a man, whenever I ask these people the question, how do you know God exists? Everyone, they would give this, I don't want to say stupid answer, but it was kind of stupid, right? And they would say it as if like, I would be like, yeah, that's, that's wonderful. <laughs> which bothered me immensely, right? So basically everyone, they were like, well, uh, I know God exists because of what I feel in my heart. And I'm like, forget your heart, right? It's reason, observation, and revelation. Now, that was a long way of kind of building up this thing, right? Like, what's the mission of the church? Either you know it or you don't, right? So um, it's one of those things. I mean, those of you who are teachers, you, you know how you can tell when students know the answer, don't know the answer, short-form answer, right? You just keep on writing, hope something sticks, right? We've all been there, whether you're the teacher or the student. Okay, the mission of the church is defined in a really particular part of the gospel. Gospel of Matthew, chapter 28. Great commission, right? So the Lord, he comes back from the dead, right? He appears to his now 11 disciples because Judas is off the scene, right? And so he says to them, go forth and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them everything I've commanded. So again, go forth and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them everything I've commanded you. Now, for those of you who don't know, before I became a priest, I was a lawyer, right? But before I became a lawyer, I did uh, my English degree, right? So this next thing I'm about to say involves grammar. So I find it kind of interesting. You might find it colossally boring, but we'll find out, right? So as you know, in grammar, there's a thing called a verb. <laughs> Already, people are falling asleep. Hang on, right? So a verb is an action word, right? Run, spot, run. Run, <laughs> run is the verb, right? So it's the action word. Now, in a sentence, if there's more than one verb in the sentence, there's always the main verb. And the main verb is called the finite verb. It's a grammatical hinge of the sentence. Other verbs, if they exist, they're called participles. And obviously they make a difference in terms of the overall meaning of the sentence, but they only make sense in light of the finite verb. Boring, I know. <laughs> but the reason why this is important is because once you identify the finite verb in the Great Commission, you know the mission of the church. 
So this is, this is the only opportunity for participation in the entire homily, so just, we gotta make it worth our while, right? So in the Great Commission, there's four verbs, right? So there's go, and there's make, and there's baptize, and there's teach. Four verbs. One is the finite verb. One is like the main verb. The rest, you know, participles, right? So we're gonna do a show of hands. I'm not gonna call on you, it's just a show of hands, okay? So the idea is, which of those four verbs is the main verb? Go, make, baptize, and teach. So, who thinks it's go? Okay. Who thinks it's make? Who thinks it's baptize? Who thinks it's teach? Who's not voting? I'll try that again. It's meant to be an icebreaker, people. <laughs> okay. So go make, baptize, and teach, which is like the most important verb. Maybe I should phrase it like that, right? So who thinks it's go? Okay. Who thinks it's make, um, baptize, and teach? Okay. So um, most people guess baptize and teach, and most people are wrong. Um, but that's okay. That's okay. Apparently, when you do surveys, even bishops and priests and deacons get this wrong. And now that's kind of unnerving because it means that no one knows what the mission of the church is. Right? The answer is, is make. It's like, ah, oh, that's what I was going to guess. Right? Make disciples. The mission of the Holy Catholic Church is to make disciples of all nations, in service of which is the going and the baptizing and the teaching. Now, you think about it, right? Um, you can have the most beautiful mission statement in the world, but what we value is revealed by what we do. How do we spend our time? How do we spend our resources? How do we spend like our stuff, right? And people always guess that the mission of the church is baptize and teach because that's what we do. We're really good at baptizing, really good at putting stuff on people's foreheads and putting things in people's mouths, right? So oil, water, sacramental species, you know, we're good at administering the sacraments. We're also really good at giving you information. You know, think about uh, First Communion. Confirmation, RCA, just giving people data, right? So we're good at administering the sacraments, we're good at administering, we're conveying data. But the, the mission of the church is to make disciples. And the fact that no one knows that really decreases their chances of, of accomplishing the mission of the church, right? So it's one of those things. Now obviously it begs the question, like what does it mean to be a disciple, right? So a disciple is all about intentionality. Discipleship is all about intentionality. So I choose individually, myself, to follow Christ with the entirety of my being with the intention of becoming another Christ in this world. So I'll say it again. So discipleship is all about me choosing as an individual to follow Christ with the entirety of my being with the intention of becoming another Christ in this world. Now, it's one of those things, you might hear that and think, yeah, okay, Father, I, I got that, right? And that's kind of what we're doing. It's not really, right? Again, our values are demonstrated by what we do, right? So I'm going to go through now um, a couple common myths when it comes to discipleship building. And you recognize this in typical parish settings, right? So whenever people develop um, like programs and like strategies for evangelization or whatever, they're operating typically under these common misunderstandings. So one at a time. You don't become a disciple simply by receiving the sacraments. Hate to break it to you. Because it's all about intentionality, right? So I don't automatically become a disciple by receiving the sacraments. Even John Paul II talks about this, right? So he says, even when someone is baptized, short of like intentionality, you merely have the capacity to have faith. 
or the capacity to believe. So baptism is obviously really important, but intention does a disciple make, right? So minus intentionality, you only have the capacity to believe. I'll tell you a more provocative story. This involves this uh, philosopher named Voltaire, and uh, he was in the 18th century. And basically, um, for a time anyways, he was in the business of trying to turn people towards atheism. And then one little Christian kid came up to him and said, you know what, um, I want to become an atheist. I want to, Voltaire, but my only um, reservation is that I, I still have this sneaking feeling of, of this, this lingering belief that, that Christ is really present in the Eucharist. So what do I do about that? And Voltaire said, like, well, that's pretty easy. All you do is, is you continue receiving the Eucharist. Receive the Eucharist a lot, every single day, multiple times per day if you can, right? But the whole time you're doing it, just say in your mind, okay, like, you know, Jesus, I don't believe in you, I hate you, you're a fiction. And in terms of your life, commit all sorts of sins with great intentionality, sins involving serious matter if you can, and just keep that up, day after day, week after week, month after month. I tell this story sometimes to kids in the schools. Scares them, right? But then it's like, okay, at the end of five months, what do you think happened? And the kids are like, he died. It's like, he, no, he didn't die. <laughs> but he lost his faith. That's what happened, right? And the moral of the story is that intention matters. And more to the point for this story, integrity matters. And so I might be receiving the sacraments all the time, but if my life is a contradiction from my expressed belief in receiving the Lord in the Eucharistic species, and that's going to have a certain effect because the human heart can sustain contradiction for only so long, right? So again, just receiving the sacraments doesn't automatically make you a disciple. Same thing when it comes to education. It's amazing how we forget this, right? So if I just like learn stuff about theology, and I read a bunch of books, and then quote this and that saint, I'm going to be a disciple. You know who the most learned people were in the, in, in the Gospels? Yeah, the scribes and the Pharisees, <laughs> Right? Like, what were they missing? They were missing a sense of discipleship, right? We know a lot about theology. We love it. We love religion. Eh, we just hate and want to destroy the Lord. That's it, you know? That's it. That's a huge part of the puzzle, right? And that's the point of the parable of the wicked tenants, right? So you remember the tenants are in a situation, and, like, they're working in the vineyard, and they love being there and, and producing things, and, you know, the grapes and the wine and stuff. It's a fantastic vineyard. But the moment that the owner sends people to check up, check up on them, they hate that. And eventually he sends his son, son's killed, you know? What's the moral of the story? It's striking, but it's possible to enjoy being in religious circumstances and going to mass and saying prayers and, you know, attending classes, maybe attending the Lenten mission, <laughs> like whatever, right? And, 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 and fall short of authentic discipleship because, again, a discipleship is all about intentionality. It's about choosing to follow Christ, right? One more thing in that regard, right? So um, this is a common mistake that people make, right? So in terms of discipleship, just because you're involved in parish groups and ministries doesn't mean that you're a disciple. I mean, it's a shocking thing, um, but that's often the case, right? Now, it's not necessarily people's fault because a lot of times you go to parishes and that's all they offer, right? There's no program or strategy with regards to discipleship building, so I'm looking at what the church offers. Well, the only, it seems to be the only option I have is to, you know, become a lector or like a, you know, Eucharistic minister or join a club or something like that because of the shortage of, of options. But again, more to the point, 
Just because you join a particular ministry or a certain parish group doesn't mean you have the intention of becoming a disciple, right? So Pope Francis talks about this. So he says, you know, there's this thing in the world called clericalism, clericalism. And he says, it's not what you think. So he says, a lot of people, they hear this word clericalism, and they think it means, you know, like priests being snooty, right? But he's like, it's not that, really, right? The way he defines it, he's like, clericalism is like um, priests and deacons and bishops trying to clericalize the laity and the laity wanting to become clericalized. And so it's a variation of, okay, you know, what's the fullness of the Christian thing? You're a lector, you're a minister, you're part of this group, right? But the idea, just to think it through, like just because you do those things, or you're part of those groups, doesn't mean you're living up to the vocation of holiness, which of course applies to everyone, never mind discipleship, right? And you see that, for example, with the story of the rich young man, right? So rich young man goes up to Christ, what good deed must I do to inherit eternal life, right? And you remember, you know, the Lord says, follow the commandments, basically. And the guy says, I've done all these things since my youth. What thing do I still lack? And you read between the lines, the rich young man's thinking, like, I'm really close, you know? I go to the temple, I tithe, I call my mom, it's all good, right? So he's thinking, like, just tell me to do one more thing to put me over the top. And Christ is like, the thing you're missing, basically, is discipleship. (laughs) And that is no small thing. And it's no small thing. That's like, that's like, it's not just part of the cake. That's like the cake, right? And so basically, rich young man, what you're looking for, you're looking for religion without discipleship. You're looking for Christianity without Christ. And buddy, like, that's not how it works, you know? And it's so funny, like the rich young man goes away grieving and he's shocked by the answer. And like, we read that and we're shocked by the answer. How can the answer be anything else? You know? How can the answer be anything else? And here's the thing, right? Like, why does the Lord invite him to enter the stance of discipleship? Because he wants him to be happy. It's because he wants him to be happy. It's not like, it's not like the Lord has an Instagram account and he just wants more followers, right? Like, it's a little deeper than that. Like, what's the question? What do I need to do to inherit eternal life? And again, eternal life, as we said many times before, is not simply duration, it's also quality. So he's saying, like, look, I'm doing all these things. I participate in ministries, I'm part of clubs. What am I still missing? What you're missing is discipleship. I'm not just saying that as an abstract thing, I'm saying that because that's the prerequisite for you actually being happy. That's what's at stake here. Now, again, this is the first night of the mission, and like, um, when you hear, I mean, gosh, we're just, we're just defining the mission, right? But when you hear the stuff on like the second night, the third night, um, there will be a recurring temptation to, to get discouraged, you know? When you hear about what the thing is supposed to be and the different failings we've, we've been guilty of as, a, as individuals and as a parish community. But the thing to remember is that um, the devil always condemns and leaves you with a sense of despondency, but, but the Lord is not like that. Uh, the Lord never condemns, the Lord always convicts. So there's always this idea of, okay, regardless of what's happened in the past, Okay, you know, here's what we do now and going forward in the future. And so just to kind of drive that point home, I want to end with this with one story. So basically, this is from uh, Rob Bell. And Rob Bell is a uh, non-Catholic Christian preacher. Shows up on Oprah Winfrey a couple, a couple times, but anyways. Um, so Rob Bell, like, he talks about this, and he says, um, basically, back in the day, like, say, imagine Old Testament times, there were three levels of Jewish education, right? So Beit Zafir, Beit Talmud, Beit Mishrash. I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing that right, but I'm also sure. 
No one speaks Hebrew. Anyways, so the first level of Jewish education, basically all these little Jewish boys and girls, they'll go to Jewish school, Bible school, and the goal, the first level of Jewish education, is that you've got to memorize the first five books of the Bible, otherwise known as the Torah, right? So Genesis through Deuteronomy, memorized word for word. Unbelievable. Who says kids can't learn, right? Still, vast majority be sent home. So they'd be told one of two things. Go learn to manage a household, or go home and learn to ply your family trade. That was the expression, go home and learn to ply your family trade. And what that meant was go home and learn to do what your father does. Your father's a carpenter, learn carpentry. Your father's a fisherman, learn how to fish, right? Go home to learn to ply your family trade because you're not cut out for this, right? Or this is as far as you can go based on your intellectual capacity, blah, 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 right? Okay, stage two, the ones who are like, you know, they got academic potential, to move on, and the goal, you might anticipate, is to memorize the entire Bible, word for word. Now, this is before the New Testament, but still, pretty impressive, right? Genesis through Malachi, memorized, word for word. Still, vast majority be sent home. Go home, learn to ply your family trade. Best of the best would go on to stage three. Now, at this point, there's nothing left to, to memorize, right? So what are they doing in stage three? They're going forth to different rabbis, different rabbis, different schools of thought, and they're asking these different rabbis of their choosing, Rabbi so-and-so, will you take me on to be your disciple? Will you take me on to be your disciple? Now, the thing to remember, right, go back to discipleship, intentionality, purpose. I follow the rabbi with the intention of becoming the rabbi. So it's, it's different than being a student, right? To be a student means, like, I, I want to try to know what the teacher knows. Discipleship runs a lot deeper than that. The goal of discipleship is to become the rabbi. So given all that, when this question is posed to the rabbi, you know, can I be, can I be your disciple? The rabbi doesn't have to ask himself, is this kid smart? I mean, they're all brilliant. They all have the Bible memorized word for word, right? So that's not the question. The question is, can this kid do what I do? And can this kid become me? If he thinks no, you know what the answer is. Go home, learn to apply your family trade. If he thinks yes, the answer is, wait for it, come follow me. You're like, huh, I've never heard that before, right? Now what's interesting, um, you hold that thought, right? You think about the calling of the first disciples, how it's portrayed in movies. And Rob Bell again talks about this. You always see in movies, um, Jesus looks um, Swedish, yeah, he's wearing a bathrobe, right? He always has an English accent, why is that, right? And then he goes up to people and says, come follow me. I can't, I can't fake an English accent, but uh, so he says, come follow me, right? And then they follow him, and it seems to be the reason why they follow him is because it's like, it's magic. Like he casts this spell, he's, he's the Lord, and they follow him like lemmings. It seems to be that's the reason why they follow him, right? But once you understand this historical context, it makes all the difference in the world. Because the question is, what are these guys doing when Jesus calls them and says to them, come follow me? They're fishing, they're tax collecting, they're plying the family trade, which means they're not the smartest. They're not the classically best. They're not particularly academically inclined. And yet here's this guy. He's not just a rabbi, like the most respected profession in the business. He is like the rabbi, right? No one has ever spoken like this man. You don't know he's a son of God. That's like cherry on top stuff, right? And here's this guy, Jesus of Nazareth, he comes to me and says to me, come follow me, which is basically to say, look, I believe 
that you can do what I do, and I believe that you can come and be me. So the reason why they drop everything to follow him is because, look, no one has ever believed in us in the way this man has believed in us. No one has ever believed that we could become great. People have always given up on us. But this guy looks at us and says, look, as much as you admire me, I think you can become me. So come follow me and let's make this thing happen, right? And that's the thing to remember. Even though there might be this recurring temptation to give in to a sense of the devil's words of condemnation, go to way of conviction. Because what you're trusting in is not so much yourself, you're trusting in the Lord's promise. When he says to you, as he does to each one of us, come follow me, implied in that is a promise. I promise I will do everything I can to help you become another Christ in this world. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit.